We find ourselves in the final study in a seven-part series, working our way chronologically, verse by verse, through the Advent, the Christmas story. We find ourselves presently at the very end of our travels, looking at, again, a very familiar passage of Scripture, the tale of the wise men coming from the east. Let's read um, maybe even the entirety of Matthew chapter 2, and then we're going to start breaking it down and trying to unpack what the Lord has for us this morning. We begin with verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, after Jesus was born, sets our context. The Gospel of Matthew gives us very little of what we consider the Christmas story or the actual birth of Jesus. The previous chapter focuses mostly on the narrative of John and his role, and it closes with, and Jesus was born, and they called the child uh, Jesus. He was born, they called him Jesus. And then we switch right over to an after Jesus was born. And the tale of that was provided for us more with more details in the Gospel of Luke. We've looked at that the last few weeks. So Jesus was born, Bethlehem of Judea. Matthew tells us the time frame in the days of Herod the king. This would be Herod the Great. And behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And as the case with Herod, all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And when he had gathered the chief priests and the scribes, Herod, of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written, and they quote from Micah 5 verse 2, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judea, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, the wise men, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream, this being the wise men, that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. 
Then Herod, when he had saw that he had been deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old, which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled, which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because there are no more. And when Herod was dead, just to kind of finish out the story, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream in Egypt, Joseph the dreamer, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of, e of Israel, for those who seek the young child's life are dead. So Joseph arose, took the child and his mother, came into the land of Egypt. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah, this is one of Herod's sons, instead of his father, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, another dream, he turned into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, that he shall be called a Nazarene. A very familiar story, one often recited probably tomorrow morning on Christmas. Let's begin by correcting some misconceptions about the story. Some things that you might have assumed were true culturally, but according to the text are false. First, very clearly, this should not be included in your Christmas nativity. Every Christmas nativity gets this wrong. When I say Christmas nativity, you know, Mary, Joseph, the stable. You got some farm animals. You got the shepherds. And then you have these wise men. All there on the night that Jesus was born. Very clearly from our text, again, just the cursory reading, this particular scene comes much later than the night Jesus was born. In fact, the shepherds and the wise men never cross paths. If you're going to do your nativity legit, then you need to put the wise men in the kitchen. And then as early as maybe mid-February, you can finish the story or the following year. But you'll need Jesus running around. And note from the text, Mary and Joseph, the child, they are, they're still in Bethlehem, which is an interesting thing in and of itself. Because why were they in Bethlehem to begin with? Well, they were in Bethlehem because Caesar Augustus made a declaration that the world should be taxed. So they have to leave their home in Nazareth and make their way to be registered. Very inconvenient for Mary because she's very pregnant. It seems as though that upon having the child, they wait in Bethlehem for the days of purification to be complete. We looked at this last Sunday. They go, they present Jesus there in the temple. You have Simeon, you have Anna, this wonderful testimony as to whom the child truly is. But then they go back to Bethlehem and they find themselves uh, hunkering down in Bethlehem. We don't know if this included a, a quick jaunt back to Nazareth to get their belongings. We don't know if Joseph called ahead and said, could someone rent a U-Haul for us? We need to get our belongings. More than likely, they were so poor, again, just offering the, uh, the concession of two turtle doves instead of a lamb, according to Leviticus. So poor, they might not have had anything in Nazareth worth going back to retrieve. Either way, we see that they don't stay in the stable indefinitely. 
which again, as we've noted, was more than likely a cave, probably spending one, two, couple nights at the most. At some point, Joseph is like, we're not going back to Nazareth. And you can understand that. Again, the controversy around Mary's conception, Joseph buying into the story, having to sell that to his family. They get to Bethlehem. There's no room in the inn. There's no guest house available. The rumor mill within the family did not allow for them to stay. (coughs) They don't want to go back to Nazareth. So Joseph, again, a carpenter by trade, (coughs) more than likely, finds himself some work, (coughs) makes himself a living, meager, honest, and they get a house. And, And note, from the scene, the wise men come to the house where the mother and the child were. Again, that's not the stable. It's a house. And and note that the word we have, the child, this is not a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. We have Jesus now as a child, which according to uh, the language provided means that he's a toddler. They see the star. They make their way. Herod determines what's going on. Even within the time frame, the justification that Herod uses for having the baby boys in Bethlehem all murdered, it's two years and under. Why? He's setting that time frame. So that gives us context that Jesus is at least somewhere under the age of two when the scene unfolds, when the wise men arrive. Again, a considerable amount of time has passed from the Christmas scene. So that's the first misconception. This is a totally different story. Different setting, different scene, different characters, different motivations. Let me give you another misconception. That there were three wise men. I mean, that's what the nativity presents, right? Three wise men. Did you find a numerical value placed on the number of wise men at any point within our text? No, they're just referred to in the plural, they, them, their, The only justification, the only reason that we have for determining there being three wise men is the fact that they gave three gifts. But notice, and here's another misconception, that those frankincense, uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh were the only things that they gave. Notice, they opened their treasures and then gave. And these are just the ones mentioned, meaning that there were more things that they gave. Just from the context of traveling from the east, a long journey, You wouldn't just roll with three amigos. It would have been very dangerous. In fact, more accurately, as you're imagining the story, this cohort coming from the east would have been a very large group of people. So much so, they get to Jerusalem and there's a buzz around town that this crazy delegation just showed up. I mean, you've got camels and armory and Uh, and ninjas. I like to think there were ninjas there. I don't know why. I just think that that's fun. And we're not told, so we can just have a good time with it. So you've got the the wise men, and you've got their their ninja brigade, you know, that's protecting them as they travel 800 miles, 1,000 miles across desert terrain. Wise men. Another misconception is that they were kings. They're often presented that way, again, with the normal nativity. We say that they're kings because they wear crowns. Again, the the phrase here, the wise men, has nothing to do with any type of like kingly positions. 
the translation we have is the magi. They're the wise men, which we'll unpack in a moment. But they're not kings. That They are men of dignity. They're also men of some considerable wealth. But they're not kings from the east. Another thing, and this is a, a kind of a new thought, honestly. Um, I listen to a lot of Bible studies in preparation for what I do here on Sunday morning. And almost every single commentator that I listen to makes the assumption that the wise men from the East were Gentiles. I've always heard that. But does the text tell us that? Does the text tell us that they were Gentiles? No, not at all. Could they have been Jewish? Why do we make the assumption that they were Gentile? Because again, that would kind of still be a weird thing that why would Gentiles be coming from the East in, in search of the king of the Jews? Why would they care about a king of the Jews if they were Gentiles? Is this some delegation being sent from another empire? No. Could they have been Jewish? Maybe. I think it adds a wrinkle. Again, assumptions we always make by just reading it, hearing people talk about it. Assumptions. The star. Kind of a pivotal part of our story. Not sure if you're aware really doesn't behave like a star much, does it? <laughs> I mean, it's a star that appears, it disappears, and then the language when it reappears is really interesting because, like, it literally comes and, and rests over the head of the child. I don't know if it was a real star. Everyone in Bethlehem has been incinerated. Stars are big, gaseous, you know, objects that emanate heat. So like with the star itself, we have like kind of an odd thing going on. And you can study the star as much as you'd like, and you can find all different types of interpretations of exactly what it is. By the way, fun fact, historical fact, that the star coming and resting over the child is, and that depiction of that within art is the earliest reason that we have halos over saints. It's, it actually emanates from the star over baby Jesus and having the aura above him. That's why you find that within art depicted in early centuries. That's where you get it from, the star. We know it's some type of astronomical event because, again, men from the east see it. They travel. It disappears. It doesn't get them to the exact location. The star's not real tuned into GPS, is it? If the star's trying to get them to baby Jesus, it does a really terrible job because it gets them to Jerusalem and then disappears. And they're like, where do we go now? Doesn't take them to Bethlehem. Doesn't take them directly to the child. So this is a star that's being controlled and is being used for intention. Interesting type of star. You know, the other misconception and falsehood related to the story is that we call this, like you'll even find like Christmas nonprofits, the East Star Ministry. Um, it's not the East Star. It wasn't the star in the East. The wise men were in the East. They saw a star which would have been in the, want to take a guess? West. Should be the West Star Nonprofit Ministry. It's not the East Star the star in the west that the men in the east saw and traveled. Again, very interesting scene. Quite bizarre, honestly, if we take a step back from it, isn't it? There's, there's really 
more questions presented by the text than there are answers. Why the star? How the star? Who are the wise men? Why these gifts? Why the interest? And our text here in Matthew doesn't provide us many answers to these very obvious questions, does it? Matthew is presenting Jesus as the king of the Jews. That's his purpose. That's why he doesn't so focus a whole lot of attention on the particulars of Jesus' physical birth. It's not of interest. It's just he was born. Begins with a genealogy because to be a king, one has to have lineage. Focuses on this story because of the confirmation that Jesus was what? A newborn king. Matthew, writing more of the humanity of Jesus, spends more time regarding the birth of Christ for obvious reasons. Matthew, again, presenting Jesus as the king. He, he, he doesn't answer the question as to who the wise men are, likely because the audience that's reading the gospel of Matthew, that being Jewish believers, believing in Jesus as their Messiah, would have immediately connected dots that we might not naturally do. You'd have to take a step back, wise men, magi. We don't know who they are. Do we have any other references of magi within the scriptures? And to that we do. And, and the explanation of this provides, I think, a lot of easy answers and then a depth of understanding about this story that you wouldn't have otherwise. You have to go back 600 years, give or take, before the scene. This is a totally different time in the area, different time in the world. In fact, Rome didn't exist. It was just a, a, a small tribe on the Italian peninsula. The Greeks were city-states, still hadn't developed into their own empire. The Persians had yet to rise. You were left at the moment with the Babylonians. Very powerful empire, but a short-lived empire. And the, and the Bible actually addresses the time period of the Babylonians and then their interactions with the Jewish people quite a bit in the Old Testament. Specifically during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. The armies of Babylon came to Jerusalem. They sacked the city. This is when the temple, Solomon's temple, ends up being completely destroyed. It's leveled. The city walls are destroyed. The people are taken into exile. They're dispersed throughout the world. Of a group, they're living in Jerusalem that is part of this diaspora, is a young man by the name of Daniel. He's got a few buddies. You might note them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but they're taken a thousand miles away to ancient Babylon, today, present-day Iraq. They're taken from their culture, from their city, from their people, from their religion, and they're placed into a totally foreign world, and they're to serve the choice men of Israel, Daniel being included. They're to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. This is what the story, the framework of the book of Daniel is about. Now, what's interesting, and again, we could recap quite a bit of the narrative, but for cliff notes, Daniel and his buddies in a foreign place, they make some concessions. They learn the language. They dress a certain way. 
you know, they're going to they're gonna be faithful. They're going to be obedient. They're going to serve Nebuchadnezzar to the best of their ability. Uh, but they, they did draw a line in the sand when it came to their diet. You know, there were things related to the law they weren't going to cross. Chapter 1 of Daniel, there's kind of a cook-off royale, like our diet versus your diet. Let's see who's healthier. We continue that today. I only eat meat. I only eat animals that eat grass that make meat. We have these arguments. Chapter 2 of Daniel, these men have excelled. Nebuchadnezzar has this crazy dream. He's disturbed by the dream. It's actually the succession of empires. He's so disturbed by the dream and so intending to get a proper interpretation that he gathers gathers together all of the smartest people in Babylon. He's like, you guys need to tell me what this dream means. And they're like, cool, tell us the dream. He goes, no, 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 no. No, what we're going to do is I'm not going to tell you the dream. You're going to tell me the dream and give me the interpretation because if you can tell me the dream, I can then accept that the interpretation is divinely given. And they're all like, what are you talking about? We can't do that. He's like, okay. And so he starts killing all of the, the smart guys in the land. Starts going through the, you know, Babylon University, just heads of departments. Well, Daniel finds himself in this scene. And so he comes, he says, hey, can I have a moment? <coughs> can I pray? Can I seek God? So they give him a night. <clears throat> and him and his buddies come back in the morning. Here's the dream. Nails it. <coughs> and then gives him the interpretation. It's an amazing scene, an amazing story. It has nothing to do with Christmas. But at the end of chapter 2, we're told that King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrated himself before Daniel, which is an, an amazing scene. He commanded that they should be presented an offering and incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, a revealer of secrets. Since you could reveal this secret. So the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler of the whole province of Babylon, chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel petitioned the king and set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Do you notice something, what happens here? Daniel, a Jew in Babylon, right, interprets a dream and he gets a promotion. And his promotion is, is including that he is now the complete overseer of all of the wise men, literally the same word, the magi of Babylon. Now, where are they located? In the east. And what is Daniel in charge of? Magi. He'll stay in charge of the Magi throughout the rest of the Babylonian empire. Daniel will be a unique individual because he will transition to a new empire. Babylon will fall. The Persians come in. Daniel stays in his place and capacity as chief of the Magi, Daniel chapter 10. What were the Magi? Well, literally, the Magi were astrologers. And they dealt in the Zodiac, and they were fortune tellers to an extent. But they were masters of the sky. They charted the stars. That's interesting. Within the context of Matthew 2, we have have wise men tracking stars. 
And, but, but then we got Daniel in charge of the men that track stars. Let me tell you a little bit more about Daniel. Daniel is probably the most messianic of all of the Old Testament prophecies, meaning that Daniel prophesied more about the coming Messiah, prophesied more about Jesus than any other Old Testament prophet. To the point that in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel receives a prophecy, it's called the 70 weeks prophecy, where 490 years are determined, God determined for Israel. And that these 490 years would begin with a very singular event, the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which happened under the reign of the Persian king Xerxes. And that exactly 483 years from that command, Messiah the prince would present himself to Jerusalem. This is Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. 483 years. And exactly to that date, April 632 AD, and again, you can get into the math and the changing of calendars, Jesus does what? He presents himself to Jerusalem riding on the donkey, and they all are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king. And the Pharisees are like, you need to tell these people to shut up, man. And Jesus is like, no. And then Jesus rebukes them. He says, you should know what this day is about if you knew anything of Daniel the prophet. We get back to Daniel. So roll with me. Daniel knows roughly when the Messiah will present himself to Israel. It's interesting. He doesn't know how old Jesus is when he presents himself. But he can kind of guess, which then is interesting because the wise men show up late. <laughs> like they don't get there on the exact day. Now, if Daniel could have known exactly, you know, how old Jesus would have been when he presented himself, he could have run the calculations. What I'm proposing, and the way to read Matthew 2, is that some hundreds of years before this event, Daniel created a sect of the Magi, tracking the stars astronomically, saying, when you see this star align in this place, that is the indication something monumental has happened, and I got some gifts I want to give baby Jesus. Could they have been Jewish? I think so. Why do I say that? The, a lot of the Jews never left Babylon. And a lot of the Jews were Magi. Could this have been a specifically Jewish sect of the Magi? that then make this determination. Again, the story then begins to make sense, right? They see a star. They've been given this prophecy. Daniel's left them with the roadmap and the instructions. They see it. They're in the east. They see the star in the west. Things line up just right, and boom, they make their way. It's a long journey. They get closer, and then for divine reasons, God's like, well, the star goes away. Maybe it was a cloudy day. We don't know. We're not told. Now, something then happens because then the, the, the star starts to move <laughs> and gets more specific to the young child. But they get to Jerusalem, and what are they in search of? Go back to the text. They come to Jerusalem. Another misconception is that they come directly to the palace. The, the way the text kind of unfolds here is that they just come to Jerusalem, and they're like, hey, guys, where's the, where's the king? And they're like, who are you and what are you doing? And then word gets to Herod. And he's like, hey, guys, what do you, what, what's going on? But look, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We've seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. 
Well, what, what interesting phraseology. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Not sure if you know how kingly successions work. If a child is born, they're typically what in a monarch? A prince? Like, how often do you have a newborn king? Look, they're not looking for a prince. They're looking for, where is he who has been born? Who is the king of the Jews? It's not, will become the king of the Jews? Is waiting for the right succession to fall in line? No, where is he who is right now presently king of the Jews? He's been, he's born king. Now this freaks Herod out. Now Herod the Great is an Edomite. Desperately wants to be a Jew. Desperately wants the Jews to accept him. So much so he rebuilds Zerubbabel's broken down temple into one of the the wonders of the, the ancient world. Never accepted because he's not a Jew. He's King Herod. He's in control of the area. The greatest threat to King Herod is an actual born king of the Jews, because guess what didn't exist? Any king of the Jews. There hadn't been a king of the Jews in centuries. So you're Herod, who Caesar Augustus famously said it was safer to be Herod's pig than one of his sons, because anytime Herod got a little shaky that maybe someone was vying for position, he had them whacked. He had a lot of people whacked. In fact, he was so bummed out thinking that he was going to die and no one would mourn, he had a list of nobility that they were instructed to kill when he died so there would be mourning. He was a short man with a compulsion. He gets word there's a king, a born king of the Jews, and he's like, I got to figure this out. And so what happens? And he gathers all of the chief priests, the scribes together. He inquires. He's troubled. He inquires, where's the Christ, the Messiah, is to be born? Now, Herod does the right thing. I'm curious. Where, where, and he goes to the Bible teachers, the experts in the, in the law, the people that understood prophecy. He's like, hey, we've got these guys, this entourage from the east. They got the ninjas running around. Don't forget about the ninjas. And they've come, and they're here, and they're looking for the king of the Jews who's been born. I was not aware that this was happening. No one brought me into the loop. Guys, what does the Bible have to say? Now, what's mind-blowing is it doesn't take them very long to be like, oh, yeah, actually, um, well, we know exactly where he'll be born. He'll be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Here's the biblical reference. Uh, So that's where he is. And so Herod brings that knowledge back to the wise men. He's like, hey, this is where he should be born. Why don't you guys go find him? Bring back words eats to me. So I can go worship him too, which we know is a total crock, which is why the wise men end up not returning. And then, well, Joseph's warned in a dream. They've got a, they've got a jet, and then Herod does what he does. They knew. So the wise men come, and, and the scene. So they see the star again. I don't know how to explain that. I do love the fact that they rejoice, verse 10. It wasn't just great joy. It was exceedingly great joy. This is joy upon joy upon joy. They come into the house, and they see the young child, 
with Mary, his mother. You know who's not included there? Joseph. You find that weird? Kind of find that weird. First, the order the order's interesting. The child and then Mary. And, and ordering, when we get into Greek, you always ordered based upon significance. So those that want to say that Mary is co-redemptious, is like on equal footing, which, well, not according to the text, because it's the child and then the mother. The order matters. But Joseph isn't there. I was asked a question this week. Why Mary and Joseph? Like of all the people God could have picked, why Mary and Joseph? And I think that's a great question. And I can really, I can answer why Mary. You know, we go back to our initial, I think it was the second study where we looked more at more details of Mary's experience. I mean, Mary's a special lady. She's chosen, she's favored, she's blessed, she's a rock star. And then she's contemplative and she thinks about things and she carries it and she sings, she writes songs on the fly. That's just oozing of scripture. And this is an uneducated lady who's never been to synagogue, and yet just, it, out, it flows from her heart. And then when those shepherds, she ponders. She, she's, again, I can, I can understand why God's like, you know what? That girl, she got it. I'm going to pick her. She'll be the mother of my son. And everybody that sees his face for all of eternity will also see hers. Joseph, on the other hand, now don't get me wrong, Joseph is a just man. He minded to put her away. But Joseph is, <laughs> Joseph is not part of the story at all. If he just hadn't lucked out and got betrothed to Mary. I mean, think about that. God picks Mary. The only reason Joseph's in the story is because he happened to be betrothed to her. And then he made the decision, yes, on his own, that I'm going to stay betrothed. I'm going to kind of, I'll be, I'll, I'll be a part of this. But he's only there. Be same reason a lot of you are only here. He married a good woman. Literally, the only reason Joseph is in the story is he married a good woman. I love that. What's he doing? Well, he is in the story. Hadn't run out on the family. He's at work. He's at work trying to make a living. And the wise men come to the house. Imagine Mary opening the door and there's a delegation of wise men from the east. These crazy, the camels, the donkeys, don't forget the ninjas. You know, like it's just an amazing scene. And then they come in. They're already exceedingly joyful, which means they're having a parade making their way to the house. They got the guitars out singing worship songs. I mean, they're pumped up, and they come in, and they fall down, and they worshiped him. They worshiped a child. Jesus might have pooped in his britches while they're worshiping. He's a toddler. What a moment. I'm sure Mary picked them up. And they fall down and they, they worship. Notice they worship a baby. 
You know, interesting, this is the only scene in the entire Bible where humanity falls down and worships humanity. Now, there are other instances where someone like John in Revelation tries to fall down and worship an angel. What, what does the angel say? No, 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 no. Like we have sometimes a reaction where like Daniel wants to worship. No, 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 no. This is the only instance where we have men, maybe even women, falling down and worshiping a baby, a child. Could they get anything from him? No. Were they asking? No. They knew who he was, the born king of the Jews, and that was enough for them to fall on their face and worship. But then note, their worship doesn't end with just the expression of their, of their heart or their songs. And when they opened their treasures, again, treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, that of a king. Frankincense is used all throughout all of the priestly, priestly sacrifices. Just do a, a Google search or a word study of frankincense in the Old Testament, specifically the law. Every sacrifice had frankincense. It was the, the, the spice. It was the old spice of the priests, so to speak. Myrrh. Myrrh's a weird one. You can read a lot of different commentators, like why myrrh? Um, it's embalming fluid, which is an odd thing to give a baby. It's like, come to your kid's second birthday with a coffin. Here you go. He'll grow into it. I mean, that's how weird it is. Did they know? Did they know he'd come to die? How would they know that? Daniel would. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. No, though. Their giving manifested from their thanks and their worship. You can tell a true worshiper by what manifests from their life an act and in deed. That doesn't mean like we're going to take an offering at the end of the Bible study. There is an offering box at the, the front door, it's open. But there's a manifestation of their heart. They give these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Did they hold on to the gifts forever? I don't think so. These were very expensive, very costly. And Joseph is going to need to maneuver some things, very poor. The wise men are going to leave. Joseph's going to be warned in a dream, we've got to bail to Egypt. They've got to be in Egypt for a little while. That's an expensive trip. There are about a million Jews at this point living in Alexandria that could disappear safe place to be. They could still be around their culture. Then they got to travel back full circle. They end up back at Nazareth, right? About four years, give or take, from when they left to when they returned. All of that's expensive. I, I'm, I'm fairly certain that God provided. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We're like, we don't need the myrrh right now. They sell this stuff. God provides a means of escape. The wise men. How much did they know? We don't. We, we don't know. We, and again, Daniel, that's a theory that's speculation. I think it's a solid theory, but it is still speculative. What did they know? 
a little, a lot, but what's inspiring, it's not what they knew, it's what they did with what they knew. These men travel a thousand miles across desert to worship the king of the Jews, to worship the Savior. Amazing. Herod, what a crook. He dies a miserable death. What he did here was wicked. He recognized that a king was born. And he so resisted that, he felt so threatened by that, that he orders the execution of all the male children in Bethlehem. Barbaric and tragic. It's amazing how far people will go when they resist the truth. The people that astound me within our text. And, and, and I think what is most relevant to you and I, it's the people that knew and didn't do a thing. The wise men act on what they knew. Herod acted on what he knew. But you have in the middle of it all a group of scribes, religious people that knew. And think about what's happened up until this point. It's not a big area. It's a tight religious community. Think about the amount of, of, of warnings, of flares already sent across the bow. You had a buddy of theirs two years before this. A guy everybody knew, been around forever. His wife was Baron Elizabeth. They were at the temple the day that Zacharias walked in. It took a lot longer than he was supposed to. And they were there when he comes out and he can't talk. And they were there when he's like, this is crazy, and he's writing it down. And they were there when they name him John. And they're like, wait a second, why are you naming John? Well, God's grace is here. They were privy to that. That was in their community. People talked about it. Even the text notates it. That word went around town, something crazy. 400 years of silence up until this point. And then you get that happening. And then they come and they start talking to Elizabeth. And she's like, I got to tell you about this other thing going on. And Nazareth. And there was rumors going all over town there that a virgin had conceived. Now they all rejected it. But there had been the word. And the word from there, from Nazareth, had gotten to Bethlehem because there was no room in the inn because no one believed her story. But there was a girl walking around saying, the virgin conceived and my child is the savior. And then they take the child after the shepherds, who are the first visitors, go again into Bethlehem and let everyone know what just happened. They go to the temple. And then you have two more characters publicly in the midst of all of it. Notable, just, famous people. Simeon and Anna. This is the, this is the consolation. This is the Messiah taking the child up into the... All of this happens in public. It's on the, the back pages. And then you have wise men from the east... Show up. Our star, the GPS didn't work all that great, but we made it. Where is he? Anticipating they all know. 
And then they have to inquire, and the religious people who have been exposed to all of this are like, yeah, he's in Bethlehem. So the wise men go, they don't go. They're not even interested enough to just, the curiosity? Can we just send one guy to just check it out? It's a four-mile walk. Nothing. Nothing. Religious people. Religion. What was the threat? Understand a savior, that's his name, Jesus, salvation, requires the admitting of the need to be saved. And these men were so comfortable and their procedures and their traditions and their their obedience and their piety. Well, they don't need a savior. You see, the presence of Jesus was a threat to their own moral standing of rightness, of goodness. You see, the shepherds had no problems admitting they needed a savior. They were the outcasts. And the wise men had no problems admitting they needed a savior. Herod, well, that's a different thing. But these men, they knew where he was. They didn't do anything. You know where Jesus is right now, do you? The Bible tells us that after dying on a tree, he rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's where Jesus is. And he invites us to come into his presence to accept salvation, and to worship accordingly. Are you one of the religious people who know where he is, but will do nothing? Or will you take the little bit you know, and guess what, it doesn't have to be much. That's the great thing about the wise men. Wisdom isn't knowledge. Wisdom is the appropriate application of knowledge. That's what wisdom is. For example, you know people that are really smart, but they're the dumbest people you've ever met, right? The book nerds, you know, the people you picked on at lunch. Like they, they had all the knowledge, but man, they just, they didn't have any type of street savvy, common sense. They knew it all. They're dumb. And then on the flip side, you got people that don't know a lot, but somehow are really good at navigating life. It's because they got wisdom. They, they know how to use what they know. That's what wisdom is. These are wise men. That's what how they're described. They're not wise because of the amount of knowledge. There are things that you won't know. There are questions that you might not have answers for. The question is, do you have enough? Enough. Is there enough knowledge? The difference between a wise man and a fool is a fool will not act on what he knows, but a wise man will act accordingly. Don't be a fool this Christmas.
Father, we thank you for your word.